Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at BYU's International Cinema. We are in our ninth week of fall semester 2020. I'm Doug Weatherford, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm joined today by fellow IC co-director Mark Yamada. Hi, Mark. Hello. And special guest Mark Olivier, professor of French here at BYU. Mark is a specialist in 18th century French literature and has published on the intersections of science, technology, and literature. Although Mark took to writing about horror film as a guilty pleasure, he has become somewhat of an expert on the topic and published this year a volume enticingly called Household Horror, Cinematic Fear, and the Secret Life of Everyday Objects. Welcome, Mark Olivier. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This week, as we approach Halloween, we are discussing The Eye, the 2002 horror film set in Hong Kong and Thailand, and directed by Danny and Oxide Peng, twins often referred to as the Peng brothers. Toward the end of our discussion, we'll also ask each of our participants to offer their recommendations for other international horror offerings that our listeners might find intriguing. Although it's difficult to talk about the eye without giving away some spoilers, we'll do our best to avoid some of the more important twists and turns. Fair warning, however, to those who would prefer to watch the film before listening to this podcast. The Eye tells the story of a young blind woman who, after receiving a cornea transplant that restores her vision, realizes that she can see not only the living, but also the dead. Mark Olivier, and occasionally I'll refer to you with your last name since we have two Marks on the program with us yeah, today. We you have an interesting yeah. personal connection to this film, and I was hoping that you might start us out talking about that. Yeah. Um, so coincidentally, I also had a corneal transplant, probably around the same age as the woman in the film. And I used this movie way back when it first came out on DVD anyway, as the first movie in a movie group. I, my wife was in several book clubs at the time. I thought, hey, I want to do a you know club thing, but without the books. Mm -hmm. So several faculty members and I get together once a month watch a movie, talk about it, have dinner. And The Eye was the first film that I chose for the, for the movie group. Oh, that's great. And how did the experience of having that operation affect the way you saw this film? Well, when you have a transplant, you can't help but think of who this person is that died and that is your donor. And so that does leave space for both gratitude and anxiety in the sense that, you know, who, who is this? Will this take with mine? Will it be compatible with my body? Cause you can always reject a, a, an organ as well. So I didn't see any dead people with my cornea, but I loved the idea of some kind of additional feature that's grafted onto your body with the corneal transplant. There is a tradition of horror film that's uh, kind of known as body horror, and you talk about a subgenre called transplant horror. And I'm yeah, wondering if you yeah. could explain what uh, that would be and how it's revealed in some of the films that you've seen. I'm totally making up this as a subgenre <laughs> transplant <laughs> horror, as far as I know. But you're right. There's a general uh, framework of body horror, which just sounds is what it sounds like, basically the horror of the human body. But there's also within that, you could argue these movies that deal with transplants. So you have, um, for example, 
Hands of a Stranger in 1962, which is in one of four adaptations, I think, of Hands of Orlock from 1924, where you have grafted hands. Then there's the 1991 movie Body Parts about a criminal's arm that's transplanted on somebody. Uh, you have tradition like in manga and anime, uh, Tokyo Ghoul, that deals with the transplant changing a body. There are face transplant movies like Eyes Without a Face or Face Off. There are heart transplant shows. There's a probably not for the squeamish on Netflix, a series called Chambers about a heart transplant. And uh, there are brain transplant movies. Jordan Peele's Get Out is uh, it deals with brain transplants. Um, there's a Killer Mermaid musical from Poland called The Lure that um, has a mermaid wanting to get legs, but in a very gory way that's not Disney appropriate. So yeah, there are a lot of movies. There are also movies about being an unwilling transplant donor. But I would say that this movie fits within transplant horror as the, you know, it, it reveals the horror of having a body that is in some ways not entirely your own. The first thing that came to my mind when you talked about hand transplants was, of course, Luis Buñuel and some of his famous films, uh, including Un Chien Andalou that mm-hmm. has uh, body parts or uh, El Angel Exterminador, The Exterminating Angel. Uh, is, is there a connection to somebody like Buñuel and the surrealist movement or is this uh, something completely different than that? Well, I, th- I think you could argue that there is because of that kind of disassociation that you see playing around with, you know, othering yourself, making, you know, this fear like in the Chien Andalou where he's looking at his hand and ants are crawling out from it. And, you know, it, it, this, this idea of not recognizing your own body and also the play between dream state and waking state, which um, I kind of think fits with this, this movie as well. Great. Yeah. And uh, also in a conversation with me, talked about uh, something that is called suture theory that uh, seems perhaps to be connected to what we're talking about. And that's the uh, a combination of uh, different elements to create something holistic or complete. Or perhaps you could explain the concept a little bit better than that and see how you might uh, see the eye as participating in the, the concept of suture theory. Yes, suture theory, I you know, it's it's kind of an obtuse Lacanian psychological theory and origins, but it's actually really simple. It's basically when you look at film, film is stitched together from parts. You know, you you cut things, you edit them. In the earliest days of film, there were actually seamstresses involved in stitching. So so the suture is, is was actually literal. Of course, then they use tape. But um, film is kind of sets of parts, parts of recorded reality that are all stitched together. And when you watch a movie, you are also stitched into the film by the way that that film speaks to you. There's a grammar, you could say, of film. So one of the most beloved examples of this among people who do suture theory is um, the shot reverse shot. So people who, you know, even if you don't have a film background, you recognize this when one person is speaking, and you're put in the position of the person listening, then all of a sudden, it'll switch, and you'll be put in the other person's position, and you'll kind of 
alternate from one speaker to the next. That's the, the shot, reverse shot. So your point of view changes. And according to suture theory, you're kind of ripped violently from one position to the other, but that violence makes you want to invest more, yearn for connection, and it draws you in, it stitches you into the movie. So the movie is not only itself a kind of stitched together work, but you are also stitched into the movie as the viewer. So I, I think that that just seems really appropriate with this movie that literally deals with vision and stitching, having a cornea, you know, sort of the screen to your eye being stitched on becomes a metaphor for what happens when you look at a cinema screen and how your eye becomes stitched into that movie. So I think they play with that in the film from the very beginning with the with the opening shots where you see blur and you immediately get into this point of view of somebody struggling to see and just that just the struggle of having selective blur in an image puts you in this position where you're trying to see it sutures you into the film and when we talk about the eye it seems like we're back to Buñuel aren't we in the surrealists <laughs> I'm yeah. wondering if uh, you might uh, give us another example of a scene within the film that uses this concept of suture. And uh, Mark Yamada, you f uh, feel free to join in as well if you remember an example that you saw within the film. Yeah. So, the, you know, the opening, as I, as I said, but there are a lot. If I, I would love for viewers of this film to pay attention to what position they are put into as viewers. You'll see a grandma, for example, look through a peephole and you get this fisheye view of something. There are times when you get the point of view of a ghost. You have the point of view of a mirror at one point. She's stretching her fingers to touch a mirror to kind of verify what it is that she's seeing. And suddenly our position as spectators is from the point of view of the mirror with the fingers kind of poking at us. So there are a lot of different point of views in the, in the course of the film where we switch between a living person, an object, a dead person. And, you know, it's that that throws us into this state of almost disembodiment, where, you know, sometimes we are the ghosts. And in a sense, that's what this is about. You know, we look at a screen, but does the screen look back at us? And so there are a lot of shots of her reaching out and it almost feels like she's reaching out to us. And I guess just one final example, the very, very beginning of the film, you see the title credits with Braille and transforming into text. And you have images of kind of reaching out as if the film wants to, wants to touch you. So that kind of calls the spectator into participation with this. Yeah, at the end there, too, I don't want to give too much away because um, we don't want to give away, well, I guess we kind of have to give away spoilers, but she goes back to Thailand and she's in the house with the mother of the woman who I think is the donor of the eyes. I can't remember too long. It's been a couple months since I've seen it. But then I think we were, were kind of shown visions of the daughter's death. I think she committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it kind of jumps around. We have kind of black and white, but we're getting, it kind of jumps around from perspectives, right? Where we're getting, you know, it's her perspective and she's seeing things from the, the woman who died and then the mother's there as well. And it kind of spins around in that way, which seems like what you're talking about a little bit here, this kind of 
blending together various different perspectives, right? Um, in that one moment. I thought that the, one of the um, interesting points when you talk about, you know, point of view and suturing and who is the focalizer within any particular scene. And after Mun, the protagonist, sees their first ghost, it was interesting to me that that the directors, the Peng brothers, used this blurred vision as a way of letting us see what she sees, which is an imperfect sight. And yet almost immediately after that, as she's back in her hospital room, we get an establishing shot that shows us the outside of the hospital, almost as a way of, you know, telling us, okay, we're going to confuse you a little bit, but not too much. (laughs) The film tends to be classical on certain levels, right? That doesn't want us to be completely without grounding. But then the second ghost that she seems to see, I believe it's the second one, is while uh, she's driving with her sister after she's been released from the hospital. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you see clear images of Hong Kong and the harbor. And so you can tell that she is not the uh, focalizer because the images are clear. But then all of a sudden, we see a, a man who's clearly dead walking across the road or standing in the road, rather, and mm-hmm. uh, and that image, again, is clear. So we are the individual scene. We're the focalizers, not her, again, because we, we see that clear image. And so that play between clear, blurry, what she sees, what we see, what the ghosts see that you already have mentioned, I think becomes one of the pleasures of watching this film. Yeah. In in fact, I wrote down a quote because I thought it was so good from A.O. Scott's from the New York Times film critic, his review, he said, the scariest moments, usually accompanied by a well-timed electronically enhanced whoomp on the soundtrack, consist of nothing more than transitions from blurriness to clarity. Rarely has the basic nature of visual perception seemed so frightening. Mm. I really like that because I think that the fear in this movie is achieved a lot of times it's you know it's achieved without gore without you know a conventional jump scare but i guess the jump scare is adjustments in vision or just you know what we see clearly what we don't see clearly and it, you know another thing i would add is sound plays a huge role in this film i think a lot of the scares if you pay attention to the sonic quality of the scares you see that sound is kind of the ultimate mediator between sight and touch and you kind of have at the very beginning of the movie this tension between a sighted and an unsighted world you have braille you have touch which film can't convey as well and then you have sight obviously film is a visual medium but then between those you have sound and sound permeates both of those realms and I, so i i really love their use of of sound in the film great and mark uh, yamada i know that uh, you uh, particularly like uh, the horror film ringu which is yeah. also a film about sight and perhaps yeah. ahead, you might have been wanting to talk about that film at the end of our conversation but i'm wondering if you might be able to talk with us now about the importance of sight in that film and how it connects to uh, the eye. Yeah, that's really good. I, that's a film that I wanted to um, talk about just because we're also showing this at International Cinema this week. As mm-hmm. I love that film. Yeah, and hopefully this is not one that you were going to mention, Mark. No. But it, it deals with um, sight because it's about a, a haunted videotape, as you know, that if you watch 
you have one week to live. And then uh, behind the tape, there's kind of this whole mythology about a, a woman named Sadako who was, uh, th- we learn, thrown into a well and is kind of haunting the tape, whom we never really see, which is kind of interesting. I mean, the, the idea of sight kind of plays in with it. And yet at the end, uh, she comes out and attacks people. But it's also kind of interesting, I guess it maybe ties in a little bit to what you were talking about and what your book is on about this idea of household objects. And because I was watching the film again, and it, it, there's this kind of sense of horror being displaced, like the sight of horror, you know, even like a refrigerator can be kind of a, the sight of horror or, mm-hmm. you know, the television. After my too. book is the refrigerator. <laughs> oh, yeah. really? That's interesting. Yeah. Do you talk about Ringu in your book or? I don't talk about Ringu. I, um, you know, I, I guess if I had had a VHS chapter, then I would have. I have a remote chapter, yeah, with refrigerator, and yeah, but yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah, I mean, no, I that's that was kind of interesting. I was going to ask you about that because that's something I noticed this last time. And for me, it was I, I don't see this in the remake in the Ring as much, but it just seems like in Ringu that you have. You know, the television, the the refrigerator, all these things are kind of sites of horror. Is there, what's be, what's behind, I mean, this is probably getting into what your whole book is about, but what's behind this idea of, of household objects? Yeah, I think that horror explores the unknown qualities of these things that live with us, yeah. uh, that are really common and yet have something to them. So um containers in particular are interesting so you know that's why the refrigerator the refrigerator is a really strange one because um it creates a different climate in our home it's this world unto itself and um horror usually does sort of abject things with refrigerators like put body parts in them and things that disturb us but you know if you go back to the origin of refrigeration it actually there there are patents for corpse coolers and you know that are coffin like refrigerators so i think that there's an uncanny misunderstood kind of secretive realm of objects in our home that you know that it explores and i think like with ringu the the use of dead media as a sort of ghost a conveyor of ghosts is is also really interesting you have you know a vhs tape when vhs is past its prime right it doesn't seem like the most efficient um there's a movie called sinister where a demonic presence wants its children to become homicidal and film their acts on super eight millimeter film. And right. yet, you know, why not YouTube? Why not? whatever? <laughs> yeah. No, no. I like this idea of, like you mentioned, um, cause you, you know, think of a TV with poltergeist and, you know, as kind of this portal to an, on the world, but it, even the refrigerator is this kind of separate kind of climate zone, right. In your home that's, mm-hmm in some ways blends into the, but also you, you sometimes you hear it at night or you hear, you know, there's a kind of a strange thing going on with technology as well. Right. This idea that, you know, we rely on these things that are just, you know, every, everyday parts of our lives. We don't always have kind of control over them or, yeah. So it's kind of a, an interesting way of thinking about um, household objects. Sorry about deviating a little bit from the discussion. Oh, no, no. I mean, I'll, I'm up for talking about household objects anytime. <laughs> yeah. Getting back to the eye just a little bit, I was Mm -hmm. hoping that we might talk about some of the perhaps morals or ethics of the film. And I know that uh, Mark Olivia, you talk about 
the idea of empathy. And uh, Mark Yamada, I know that you uh, looked in particular at the idea of exploitation in the film. And maybe if each of you could talk uh, briefly about those concepts. But before that, I'll just say that one of the things that I really found of interest within this film was uh, the idea of seers, right? And that somehow we don't recognize the world around us and that we don't uh, learn from people who can see the world around us. So, you know, one of the things that uh, Mun, the protagonist, needs to learn is that the world is full of beauty. So she sees that beauty at the same time that she sees darkness. But also with at the end of the film, and I won't uh, give away uh, the spoiler here, but this sense somehow that there are people that see the world more clearly than we do, and yet we don't listen to them. And I thought that that was part of the ethics uh, of the movie, that's something that we were supposed to learn. Mark, Olivier, what do you think about the idea of empathy within the yeah, film? Well, you know... Horror is this polarizing genre. And when you tell people that you write about horror, then they almost feel compelled to tell you if they don't like it. You know, they'll say, oh, I hate horror. It's one of those things where you can't be indifferent. And I think one of the reasons people don't like horror, well, obviously fear, but sometimes people think, oh, it's too violent or whatever. But actually, horror is a really great empathy generating genre. And I really like this quote, Roger Ebert once called a film, a machine that generates empathy. And Mun in the eye, her grandmother says that she can see what others can't see and feel the pain that others can't feel. And this graft, this corneal graft, which you might compare to film, getting a different vision, a different sight from somebody else's point of view, gives her a heightened empathy, one that's painful. Horror, I would say, is a sort of painful empathy. In some cases, it's too painful, but it actually can be really touching. And I think this movie has a moral that is about empathy. And I guess on a side note, I should say I'm I'm working on a project right now where I'm doing a statistical analysis of tool use in slasher films. And <laughs> I I like to I'm looking at this and and I'm charting out, you know, who uses what weapons when, what race they are, how old they are. And what I found is that the absence of black victims in slasher films actually by not having violence to black bodies in horror film, we lose a chance of having an an identification of empathy and fear. So when we see people on screen that experience fear, we empathize with them. Maybe it's painful, but it also opens us up beyond our own subjectivity. So um, that, that I think horror does empathy particularly well, and that this film is definitely a film about empathy. Great. That's a fascinating take on that concept. And Mark Yamada, what do you think? Yeah, well, really quickly, when I first saw this film, I mean, it, all these ideas of like organ theft and, and kind of global supply chains and things like that were coming through my mind. And, you know, I was thinking about this idea that everything is, you know, for sale on the global marketplace and that you have this kind of a little bit of a wealthier context in Hong Kong, 
and then somebody getting you know this this uh, supply this you know this product from Southeast Asia, and in some ways maybe the anxieties of the global supply chain of not really knowing the source of the products that we're importing, and maybe speaking to some of the exploitation that happens um, in Southeast Asia and Thailand, and particularly like with the you know the forced labor and you know the Thai fishing industry that we saw a film about uh, international sort of buoyancy kind of deals with this idea of exploitation. So I saw it in that way at first as kind of this, in some ways, maybe representation of globalization and some of the exploitation that happens in it. But yeah, that was, I mean, maybe a very different way of looking at the film, but I really like this idea of looking at it through this idea of suture because it it allows us to kind of understand how we're seeing the film and how we become part of film, right? And see that thematized in, in the film itself. Yeah, and you're right. When you look at the sort of the victims in this film, they tend to be people who are disenfranchised or women and children. And there's definitely that. I'm not an expert at this area at all, but I think it's worth mentioning that this contrast between Thailand and Hong Kong and sort of between the rustic and the rural and the modern, you have that contrast between the two hospitals they'll see in the film that are so different. Right. Um, there's, there's a lot going on about sort of nostalgia and haunting of identities that are being worked out, Hong Kong in particular. I mean, this is made, I think, five years after the handoff. Right. So, you know, 156 years of British rule and then handed back. And there's a lot of, you know, grappling between different types of identities that that are there. And then there's this empathizing or maybe even romanticizing in certain aspects of simpler compared to Hong Kong kind of view. Yeah. I think that uh, our listeners will be able to notice that there's quite a lot to see in this film, not only within the film, but outside of it as well as this conversation is laid bare. Perhaps uh, since we're coming up on the end of our program, we can uh, turn towards some recommendations for other international horror films. Mark Yamada, I'd like to start with you perhaps, and I'll follow, and then we'll give uh, Marc Olivier, our guest, the last chance to perhaps recommend some other films that might be great to see this week of Halloween. Yeah, so I'll just name that one that I mentioned earlier. Bingu uh, is Nakata Hideo from 1998. It's really a film that, you know, it has it's kind of a durable franchise, right? Because it's been remade in several different contexts. There's kind of an American franchise. And so this is the original. It's based on a novel. Really interesting uh, film. Almost less of a horror than more of like a suspense film but it's definitely one that you can watch and it's it's one that is very BYU approved so I recommend that one great I dug into your recommendation I love that movie and I haven't seen that yet so I'm gonna have to step up and do that now Um, and I wanted to uh, talk quickly about Guillermo del Toro the Mexican director who has become so closely associated uh, with uh, fairy tales and horror, even within the American cinematic experience. In fact, it's difficult to imagine contemporary American monster movies that aren't in one way or another, perhaps inspired by this uh, great director and producer. And a lot of our listeners will recognize some of his English language films like Mimic from 97, although Guillermo del Toro didn't like that film much. Uh, Blade 2, Hellboy, Hellboy 2, Pacific Rim, Crimson Peak, And of course, the one that uh, finally won him an Oscar, The Shape of Water, an Oscar for Best Director and also for Best Film, that 2017 film. 
All of those are very recommendable films. Uh, as we talk about monsters and fairy tales and horror, the Spanish language film that people will likely recognize will be Pan's Labyrinth, The Labyrinto del Fauno, uh, from 2006, that I think is truly one of the great transnational films of recent years. But I'm wondering if uh, if our listeners have explored yet some of Guillermo del Toro's work that uh, takes us back to his years as a young film student and later director in Mexico. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Guillermo del Toro was born in Guadalajara, uh, the capital of the state of Jalisco in Mexico. He was raised in a devout Catholic household, studied film at the University of Guadalajara. Um, he later would write four episodes and direct five of a television program, kind of in the spirit of the Twilight Zone, called La Hora Marcada. He also spent 10 years as a special effects makeup designer. In other words, his formative period is spent primarily in Mexico. And I do like to uh, emphasize that point. But two of his more interesting Spanish language films are first uh, Cronos, spelled C-R-O-N-O-S from 1993, that was Del Toro's first feature length film. And it's set in a contemporary moment, but jumps back to 1536 when an alchemist in Veracruz in Mexico develops a uh, mechanism that can give its owner eternal life and then jumps to 1937 when that alchemist finally dies in an earthquake. And then the contemporary moment uh, after a uh, antiques dealer has discovered that uh, that mechanism. Uh, It's a really fun and interesting film to watch. The second one I would recommend is El Espinazo del Diablo, The Devil's Backbone, again by Guillermo del Toro from 2001. It's a Spanish Civil War ghost story that's set in an orphanage where the tensions among uh, Republican and nationalist loyalists turn the film, as is the case so often in del Toro's work, including in The Shape of Water, into kind of a a microcosm of the national condition. And a lot of people consider this particular film to be one of del Toro's best and most personal films. And I like both of these because they're lower budget films that kind of give us a grace that we don't always see in his larger Hollywood productions. Both include the Argentine acting great Federico Lupi. Uh, Both reflect a distinctly Hispanic cultural historical context, whether that be in Spain or Mexico. Both can be read as political and social allegories, and both are unique creations, but ones that also connect to a long Hispanic tradition of seeing the beauty and the grotesque that dates back in Spain, at least as far, I'm sure, further back to the work of uh, Francisco Goya, for those of you who know his artwork, and in Mexico, certainly to pre-Columbian cultures and to their fascination with death, with the underworld, and with the pantheistic world that can be at the same time both both benevolent and malevolent. In other words, these are two great Guillermo del Toro films that if you're del Toro fans, you should see. Mark, uh, Olivier, what are some other films yeah. that you would like to recommend for us? First, I just have to say The Devil's Backbone is one of my favorite horror movies. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that. It would have been in my book, but I'd already exceeded my word count before I got to the chapter okay. that I was going to write about that in. <laughs> so I just think that that's such a beautiful, um, it's it's one of the best uh, explanations of what a ghost story is about. I, I think that movie. So I highly recommend Devil's Backbone. I appreciate um, seconding that recommendation. That's great. Yeah, that's yeah. 
Yeah. Um, the a few that I would recommend, um, I think some of this has played at international cinema before, A Tale of Two Sisters. Yes. Um, it's a 2003 Korean film uh, by um, Kim Ji-woon, and it is based on an old Korean folk tale, and it has gorgeous production value. I yeah. do write about that in my book in a chapter on the armoire. I deal specifically with the armoire. Oh, yeah. That's right. Um, it's also very much a wallpaper movie, and I've done some work on <laughs> wallpaper in horror recently. With and uh, so, Tale of Two Sisters is—it's just a gorgeous movie, um, psychologically complex. Uh, you may wonder afterwards what what happened, what you saw, and you know, it's it's disorienting, but it's it's beautiful. Another film—it sounds like it's worse than it is. It's called Satan's Slaves. Uh, it's a 2017 film by Joko Anwar. It's um, a Muslim satanic panic movie from Indonesia. And what's really great about it, so it, it, this needs no edits. You know, it could be shown at international cinema. The title might be, um, you know, it's it, it's meant to be evocative because it is all about, you know, this fear of uh, satanic people around us, but it actually, we rarely get a chance to see a Muslim faith film that, that deals with, with issues of, you know, evil in that way. So I, I highly recommend that. Is, is it Joko Anwar? Is that yeah. the director? Yeah, Joko Anwar did yeah, say. So wasn't he, didn't he direct, uh, what was the film that was at Sundance this last time? Yes, um, Impedigore, I think it was called. Yeah, uh, that seemed, um, you can see that on Shudder, but that one, I <laughs> I mean, I loved it. It had a, a shadow play that was sublime, but it's yeah. also super violent. Yeah. Um, whereas Satan Slaves is more atmospheric and... Okay. And, you know, so, so that, that one in Pedagore, it puts the gore, it, you know, gore is in that name for a reason. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. I also really like the movie, the Thai movie Shudder from 2004. Here you've got something in Thailand that also deals with like folklore, but also technology and the idea of the camera and what the camera can see and what it can't see. So now you have this kind of, does a camera see ghosts? In the eye, by the way, the camera doesn't see the ghosts, she does. But in uh, Shudder, the camera is capable of seeing things that the human eye can't see. And so it picks up ghosts. And then I guess finally, maybe I would say Dream Home, I believe is not for the squeamish. It's been a while since I've seen it, but it's um, set in Hong Kong. It's from 2010. Peng Ho Chung uh, directed it, and it deals with Hong Kong real estate and uh, the, it, you know, the the issues between having the old consumed by new new construction. So I guess gentrification. It's it's a really good movie, but I believe that you you know you might want to check IMDb Parents Guide to see whether you're up for that one or not. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, that uh, I think gives us not only one great film uh, showing at uh, uh, International Cinema, The Eye, but also some great uh, recommendations from uh, three individuals who have differing levels of tolerance for the horror genre. <laughs> I think that, uh, Mark uh, Olivier certainly is our expert for the day. Thank you for being with us. Thank and you. I'll close by saying thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. Tune into our podcast each week for insightful discussions of the films 
streaming at IC with a variety of specialists. Current BYU students, faculty, and staff signing up with their BYU Net ID can stream The Eye and a second film that we didn't discuss, Beyond the Visible, Hilma Aufklint, this week on BYU's Hum Media platform. For instructions, visit ic.byu.edu. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at Brigham Young University and is supported by the College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here, and they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our producer, Dewey Walter, and our sound engineer, Jojo Hegstrom-Pratt, as well as the staff at the BYU Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. Until next week. Keep streaming.